before we sing this next song, I have to say something. I um, responded to the invitation last week and asked for prayer, for balance and guidance. And I was tested this week, like hardcore this week. I spent days crying, refusing to talk to people, angry, upset. And I came to this realization that I pulled this music on Tuesday when I was upset, when I was angry, and it was exactly what I needed to hear, and I didn't hear it then, but I hear it now. And it's exactly what everyone else needed to hear today, too, or at least the ones that spoke up.
God is good. That's all I got to say. I could just say that today. Uh, before I begin, I do want to say um, this briefly, and that is that uh, having been a part of New Heights Fellowship and having come here on Sundays and having had heard what people hear from the Lord, that um, I am very blessed and I would be challenged greatly, I think, to participate in worshiping God in any other way because I, I love the fact that in our church, uh, I don't bring the sermon, y'all do. <laughs> we, uh, we are blessed to hear from God individually and corporately and, uh, and that gives me some confidence that I can do what it is that the Lord's called me to do and I'm grateful for that, okay? All right, that being said, I'm going to start a sermon series a little bit today, and so uh, you will already, as we read the text that we're going to read today, you will already begin to think, man, there's a lot more there, a lot more that we could see or or learn from this text, and that is an absolute fact. So this is the beginning. We're going to take one part of it today, examine it, and put together a a piece, if you will, uh, a growth, if you will, uh, out of this text today, and then we're coming back at least next week, and I think maybe it's actually three parts, but we'll, I'll follow the Lord's leadership and see how much of it gets into next week before we see if there's a third part, okay? So the sermon title today is Brand ne- Recognition, Grace Ap- Applied. I can't even say it. Brand Recognition, Grace Applied. The sermon comes out of Zechariah chapter 3. Woo! Thank you, brother. Let's do that again. It's Zechariah chapter 3. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. This is God's word, and it's nothing about me, and I hope nothing about you, but you know that the Lord wants us to learn and grow through his word, and so we just mark that moment. Now this is him. This is it. Listen to the word. Listen to his spirit and grow, and whether I get it right or wrong, uh, he never gets it wrong, okay? And so if you listen to him, you'll be fine. I guarantee you that, all right? So I'm going to read from Zechariah chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. It is not a very long text. And then we have just a couple of other texts that, we'll, that are also not very long that we'll read before we're through. So we're going to get through this um, the, pretty quickly, um, but it's got a big punch. So I hope you're ready. Uh, I'm still adjusting to it even as I stand here, okay? So Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1 then says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan at his right hand to accuse him. So obviously this is Zechariah the prophet, and he's, when he says me, he's talking about himself. And so he saw a vision, if you will, of Joshua the high priest standing before an angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And so there we see one of the few Old Testament rep- representation of Satan. Okay? Now the devil is represented in the Old Testament in a couple of places, and especially in the book of Job, obviously. But here, the word very clearly translates through the Greek to Satan and then to the English to Satan. And so it's very clear that his role is accusing. And it says right there that he was there to accuse him, meaning to accuse Joshua, the high priest. This is being written post-exile. So after God's people have been carried off into exile um, a little bit, but they're, they're still Jerusalemites that live in Jerusalem, and they're still a priest, and they don't really have a temple, but it's during kind of the day where they're contemplating, and Haggai is a contemporary, and he's really pushing uh, rebuilding the temple, and all that's going on. Um, And so he says, The Lord showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan 
standing at his right hand to accuse him. So we've got a few uh, people in here kind of representing the, the difficulty of the kingdom of God, if you will. First, we have Joshua, the high priest. And you can imagine he is representing the holiness of God's people. He is representing God's people before God. Right? And this is the person who would have carried out the sacrifices if they were actively doing that at that time. He would represent the people. He's the one who made sure that the Levitical laws were being followed, etc. He would uh, stand before the people and correct or direct people to stop sinning, stop doing the things that they were doing, etc. He was going to represent the holiness of God's people most of the time. Like a farmer might say, well, I'm, I'm kind of a piece of dirt, but Joshua, the high priest, that man follows God. Okay, And so we have this image that he is the one that all would look up to or would lift him up as the holiness of Israel before God. Specifically of the Jerusalemites, if you will, those who were still gathered in Jerusalem after the exile had begun. Gathered before the angel of the Lord. Now the angel of the Lord here could be, uh, the word angel is basically messenger, so it's a representative of God, or it could be God. Right? It could, or it could, be, uh, it could be the one who was in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Or it could be Jesus. I mean, you take it for what, uh, you know, let the Spirit speak to you on what it might be. But the bottom line is we have a representation of God there. And we know God is holy, right? You know, God is completely different. He is uniquely different than Joshua the high priest even who was standing before him. So we kind of expect that. But here we have this representation of God there. And then lastly, we have Satan standing there to accuse Joshua and his name, Satan, means the accuser in the Greek. And so he's going to accuse Joshua. So we've got the scene set for a sort of a conflict between the holiness representative of Israel, God, who is the holy God, and Satan, who is going to accuse, because that's his role. In verse 2, it says, And the Lord said to Satan, Okay, so now we have the Lord in the picture. All right? And so we have the Lord in the picture, so now we, this could be the representative of the Lord that's there, or it could be the Lord himself added to, right? And it says, and the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. So in other words, he's shutting him down. Shut up. Say nothing. Do nothing. Shutting him down. Indeed, the Lord who had chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Okay. So first of all, we, he says, shut up. No more. You're done. I'm not going to listen to your accusations. You're not going to accuse. You're not going to not spout them off and I'm going to ignore you or spout them off and I'm going to make an excuse. He just says, shut up. You're done. No more. The Lord rebuke you. And then he goes on to say, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Okay. Now, this is not the brand, if you will, that we normally think of. Um, and it isn't even the brand, if you go back a little bit, like the branding the cattle, like a metal brand that would be put the circle R on there to prove whose cattle it was, uh, although that's very similar and comes from the same place. Um, but really, we're talking about a stick put in the fire in the hot coals and burning, and it's burning hot, you know, red hot coals, with which you could mark someone or something. And so you put the stick in there, and it's burning in the fire, and it begins to burn red hot, and you take it out, and you break off a little bit of that kind of charcoal substance on the outside. Now it's red hot, and you can stick it in skin, stick it in leather. You can even stick it in wood, and it will literally burn a mark onto it. And this is what the Lord, either through his representative or himself, says concerning Joshua, who is standing before him. Now, remember that Joshua is representing the best and most holiest of Israel here, and probably even could, you could say is representing the nation before God, but, but certainly he's representing himself. And it says, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? 
much has gone into studying this, this question, right? But the bottom line is, I want you to think about what a brand is for a moment. A brand goes in the fire and then it gets hot and it starts to even burn a little, right? And it can be a branch or a stick. It doesn't have to be made of metal. Like we make brands for cattle, make those out of metal. They hold the heat a lot longer and that kind of thing. But it can even be a kind of wood that's moist, doesn't burn well, but the surface will start to burn and get super hot. There's certain woods that you can do that. And the bottom line is it's something that can make a mark, right? But it can make a mark for a reason. It can make a mark because it was in the fire. It was in the fire and some heat from the fire was transferred to it and it even began to burn or to glow red hot and it can make a mark because it was in the fire. And he says, is this not a brand pulled from the fire of Joshua? I mean, this is why Satan is rebuked and shut up. God says, I'm going to shut you up. And the reason he shuts him up is he says, is this not a brand pulled from the fire? In other words, hasn't he been there? Hasn't he been in the midst of it? Hasn't he been in the conflict? Hasn't he faced the judgment? Hasn't he faced the difficulty? Hasn't he faced the temptation? Isn't he scarred? Isn't he burnt, if you will? And can't he therefore make a mark? And he shuts Satan down. I don't need to hear your accusations. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but but you know already, right? If Satan accused Joshua, the high priest of sin, would Joshua, the high priest of sin, be guilty of sin? Yes, he'd be guilty. Because we all have sin. All have sin fall short of the glory of God. So when Satan accuses, is he lying? No. People are like, Satan's this big deceiver. Right? Now, it's not that Satan can't accuse in a way that is a lie. Right? He does do that. But he, he certainly can accuse. He doesn't have to lie at all. Because bottom line is, I'm a saved sinner. And he could, he could go to you and tell you about things that I did before I was saved or even after I was saved, and he'd be telling you the truth, right? And so it's not that he was going to speak lies. God didn't shut him down for that reason. He shut him down because of the character of Joshua, not the character of Joshua in that he did, did everything right, not the character of Joshua in that he was holy, not the character of Joshua in that he was following God or that he was submissive or particularly humble, right, or anything like that. But the character of Joshua, because what he had been through What he had experienced marked him and then noticed that he is not just a brand who is in the fire and faced all that, as I mentioned, but he is a brand plucked from the fire. By whom? By God, right? So God has done something. So it's the what he's been through and what I've done is what makes him unable to be accused, is what stops it. So what he's been through and what I've done, what God has done, God says that makes it so that you cannot accuse him. We'll go a little further. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. Now, I'm going to say to you that probably, it's probable, that there wasn't a single day in the life of Joshua the high priest that he was ever clothed with filthy garments. He was lifted up by the people. He was cared for by the people. He was paid for by the people. Even when the people were scattered in disarray and less wealthy people and so on, he was, of all the people, he was probably taken care of the most. But let's assume for a moment that because of the exile and everything that happened or whatever, there was a shakeup, and he was. Even if he was clothed in filthy garments, his garments were still better than the garments of the people. They were still struggling more, still going through more difficulty, etc., than he was. He had been taken care of in some sense, and now he stands clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. Now, you can already imagine the symbolism of where that's kind of going. 
I want to submit to you that whatever you're wearing when you stand in front of God, whatever that might be that you're wearing when you stand in front of God, it's going to be filthy compared to God. So though he was the holiness of Israel, representing the holiness of Israel, he stood before God and he was filthy compared to God. All right? And I would say that, uh, have you ever been in a bright light? One time I was a teenager and I was wearing a white shirt and it looked good, you know? And I thought, it's fine. And then I was going to go sing in a concert or whatever at school, something we were doing, some program. And I walked out into the bright light, and guess what I found out? I found out that my white shirt wasn't as clean that I thought it was. In the light of God's light, you're white, not so clean. doesn't matter how good you are. Right? Scripture says, uh, without, again, without getting ahead, that the, uh, your works of righteousness are as filthy rags, as good as you may think you are when you stand before God. You better stand there realizing you are not him, and no one is. So there he is in a filthy robe in front of the Lord. That, by the way, when I was wearing that white shirt and I suddenly noticed that it was dirty, I suddenly got very ashamed, and I really didn't want to wear it in front of a bunch of people. In fact, I was downright distraught to think I was going to have to wear that shirt. And my mom got me another shirt, so I didn't have to wear that shirt. She rescued me. But the bottom line is, you may think it's okay, and then when it's really put under the light of examination, you're going to discover it ain't okay. And then you may be ashamed, and you may not want to wear it, but there he is. What else is he going to wear? Standing in front of the high priest in filthy garments. And he spoke and said to those who were standing there before him, saying, remove the filthy garments from him. And then again, he said to him, see, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes or festal robes, depending on how you like to say that. Again, he said to him, see, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with festal robes. So in other words, he tells him, take that mess off. Right? Remember, he's a brand who's been through the fire. He's been plucked out of the fire by God. That's what God assessed him as. And yet, when you look at him, he's wearing something that is inferior to that which God would want him to have. It's filthy, the, the word says. He's messed up. And God says, I'm going to take that messed upness off of you. Now, his robes are good. They're only filthy compared to God. Right? He said, I'm going to take that messed upness off of you. So listen, when we get to heaven, here's some symbolism for you. When we get to heaven, you're going to come in and you're saved, hopefully, by Christ. If you have accepted Jesus Christ, Lord, so you're saved. And you have the righteousness of Christ. But you're going to come in, and whose works are you going to bring into heaven with you when you come? We're going to come in with your works, because, you know, that's how it works. You did it, now you've got to pay for it, so to speak. But then you're going to be forgiven of that because of Jesus Christ, hopefully if you've accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and then he's going to take your works of righteousness off of you because they are inferior. They are worthless to save you. And since you got saved and began to do the best you knew to do, those works, doing the best you know to do, are inferior to that which God would have you have. God wants to provide something so much better for you than what you can do on your best day with your best effort. Overcoming the worst roadblocks with the mightiest striving forward and doing what you're really supposed to do, God still wants to give you something better than that. And he says, I'm going to take those filthy robes off you. And then he says, and I take your iniquity away from you. That righteousness that he was wearing, which was filthy, 
not righteousness in God's eyes, but filthy robes. Take that off of you, and then that righteousness was taken away from him. The best that Israel had to offer, and God called it iniquity. Hear me now. If your righteousness is as filthy rags, then this is what that proposes. It means that when you do the best you possibly can do, in God's eyes, that is essentially iniquity. Your best works are worthless to save you. We already got that because you only get saved through Christ. But on top of that, they are iniquity compared to what God... But we're so far down the road. Think about it for a minute. Look at what you've done to your body. Look at what you've done to your mind. Look at what you've been through. Half of that fire that we're talking about being in that makes us red hot and able to make a mark, half of that was of our own making. We did it. We screwed it up. We made the wrong choices. We blew up our lives. And then out of that, we come out here and we're going to go, well, now that I'm saved, I'm going to do righteous works. And my body's messed up because of who I was before. My mind's messed up because of who I was before. My money, my relationships, all messed up because of who I was But suddenly, I'm going to do righteous works. You're going to take inferior materials, chaotic, messed up, disturbed garbage, and you're going to make that into something that glorifies God just because you were born again. It's not the way it works. You get born again, and then admittedly over a period of time, but God begins to make all things new. All that old stuff passes away. All of it gone, right? But you're still paying the price. If you used to eat way too much, or you used to do drugs, or, or you used to not get proper nutrition in your body, or if you used to have bad relationships, or maybe you still have a bad relationship that's left over, or all these things, they're not going to just poof, gone, and now I can do what Jesus did. Like every day I'm going to just look and do what the Father, what I see the Father doing now because I got saved. But all that's still there. That's the fire that we kindled, that we created for ourselves and, and others created for us. And of course, Satan and devil, evil spirits, all that, they're all, it's all there. And in God's eyes, that works of righteousness is essentially just more iniquity. So when you judge yourself, I'm doing okay, I'm doing what's right, I'm doing the right thing. That's just more arrogance before the Lord. He says, see, I have taken away your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with festal robes. Now, festal robes is the robes you wear to the feast, right? And so this is a picture of what real salvation is like. With real salvation, everything that you are and were and what you did, all that becomes the stuff that's kind of clinging to you, whatever. And you go to heaven, and there the righteousness that is Jesus Christ is attributed to you. And so he says, well done, good and faithful servant. He let you come in, and you may have all the stuff that's got to be burnt off of you, thrown off of you, put away, whatever. And then he's going to clothe you with something that you are where you belong now. Right? That's where the parable comes in in the New Testament where they're all invited to the feast and nobody wants to come. There's all kind of excuses and stuff. And then finally they come and, and, and one guy is at the feast and the Lord comes in, he walks through the feast and he finds the guy and says, how do you get in here in the wrong robes? And the guy's like, well, I don't, they asked me to come. I, I don't know. And, and he says, get out. And he casts him out into the outer darkness where they're weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's that parable. No festal robes. You don't belong. You've got to get your festal robes from the Lord of heaven. And you do that through Jesus, of course. But here, 700 years before, 600 years before Jesus' birth, Zechariah was getting the idea that God was going to, for those who trusted him, those who believed in him, take off their filthy iniquity, even when their righteousness actually was equivalent to that iniquity, he was going to take that off and give them what they needed to be where they were supposed to be. Again, he said to him, See, I have taken away your iniquity from you, 
and will clothe you with festal robes. Then I say, let them put a clean turban on his head. Now, this might have been a pre-wrapped hat that looked like a turban, or they might have wrapped his head, whatever, doesn't matter. Clean turban on his head. So from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet, he's now ready for the feast. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. It's been done. It's settled. That's where we stop with the text. So a few things I want you to see in here that I felt like kind of jumped out at me, and by no means I know are we done, because we'll at least be back here and the, uh, the rest of the chapter next week. But the first thing I want you to see is that he was a brand pulled from the fire. The truth is, life burns. I was back at East Toledo years ago, and I was a relatively young Christian. I was working in the Iwana program there, and the kids would go into this room for council time, and, and then... Uh, they're, they would have opportunity to raise their hand or accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, that kind of thing, if they were doing that. And there was this young man who raised his hand. He had some questions. And so I sat down next to him, and I said, uh, what kind of question you got? He said, well, my dad said heaven doesn't exist. And I, and I said, well, that, that's just not true. I'm sorry. I mean, I'll be happy to sit down and talk to you, Dad. I'm not trying to provoke a fight or whatever, but this is what the Bible says, and I was teaching the truth. And he said, well, you know, in all fairness, that's not what he actually said. And I said, okay, well, what did he say? And I'm, I'm paraphrasing him, obviously. And he said, well, he said, you can go to heaven when you die, but there is no hell. He said, earth is actually hell. So we're living in hell right now. This is as bad as it will ever get, but that if you, that if you do the right things and live right and do more right than wrong, then you can go to heaven when you die. And I proceeded to explain to him what the Bible said about that. I was a young Christian, but I knew enough to know what the Bible said about that. And I explained it to him. He's about 11 or so. And uh, he didn't accept Christ that day, and I, I, I really can't tell you for sure whether he ever did. But this is what struck me about that conversation. Sometimes not knowing how bad hell really is, right? Sometimes earth is a little bit like hell, you know what I'm saying? Because we haven't experienced hell firsthand. We haven't been through it. But you've been through some stuff. Right? And there's a moment in time where it's pretty bad, even a moment in time in which you can feel the Lord's judgment on your life and things are about to just sort of fall apart or whatever. The bottom line is, sometimes it gets pretty bad down here. It isn't anything like hell. It isn't near as bad as hell, not considering the pictures that we get in Scripture. But there's some pretty bad stuff that goes on down here. If you will, this is the fire. Now, the fire would be infinite. It would go on forever. But there is a fire here. I remember before I got saved, um, I remember days where I felt so alone and empty inside that I considered taking my own life as a young person. It's ridiculous. But I did it. That's where I was at. I remember lying to my friends, trying to look good, you know, manipulating everybody around me, trying to get my way. And sometimes I did, and sometimes I didn't. And when I didn't, or when I got caught trying to do that, I felt like my whole life had just been sunk in a pile of poo. You know, nothing left. Nothing left for me. Even though I had, I'd had friends, and I'd had stuff to do, and I was busy all the time. And yet, I felt empty, and burned, and worthless. And that's what it's like to not know Jesus as Christ, Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, there are times when it's not like that, right? You don't think anything about it. It's pretty good. You're, you're eating your favorite dessert, or you're playing, or you're laughing, you're telling jokes, whatever. But there are times when it gets to be like that, when something happens just so terrible that you just don't know, you know, what's going to happen? How am I going to get through this? 
The Bible describes it this way in Ephesians 2. He says, we were once objects of wrath. Literally, he says, you were once objects of wrath. And that's where we were. We were objects of wrath. Before you accepted Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, before you began to live for the Lord and try to walk out what it is to be a Christian, to have him as Lord, to lead your life, before you began to do that, you were an object of wrath. Well, that wrath is very present in the world. It isn't like it is in, in hell. That's wrath for eternity, right? But th there is wrath here. We were objects of wrath. Before we got saved, we were opposing God. We were doing what God did not want us to do, even hurting ourselves, doing the things that were not even good for us. And God was opposing us in large part because he knew that was not good for us. And that's sort of the way mankind lives. That's the fire that's all around us, the wrath of God such as it is on this earth. Now, at the same time, I fully understand there's a thing called provenient grace. God makes available good days. He makes the sun to shine on the back and warm your back in the summer, even if you're not saved. You know, he, he, he makes the rain to fall on the crops of the good man, the bad man alike, you know. So there are good things in this life. A smile of a child, the hug or handshake of a friend, support, encouragement. There are good things in this life that bad people get. And so this is what happens. When the, when the brand is in the fire and the fire is burning and heating up the brand, you know what you do? You occasionally pull the brand out and look at it and see if it looks like it's ready. Is it hot enough? I shake this cold up. Can I mark the surface of what I want to mark? Is it hot enough? Is it finally there waiting? Now, if I was heating up a brand, I'd be so impatient. I'd be checking it constantly because that's kind of my personality before Christ and I'm still working through that, right? But the bottom line is you're checking it. And that's what life is like. Sometimes you're in the fire getting heated up and sometimes you're over here where it's got you're cooling down. Okay, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And then you're back in the fire. You know, it's not going to be okay. It's not going to be okay. And then you're over here. And what the world does is they lie to themselves and say, well, life is more like this than it is like this, right? I'm more outside the fire, more outside the difficulty than I am in, or it's all going to work out. Everybody goes through this. Well, some of what people are going through, not everybody goes through it. It's unique, if you will, to their circumstances for them to show them that there is a way out. And God wants to pull us out of the fire. God wants to remove us from being an object of his wrath. He wants to show us. In fact, while we were yet sinners, he died for us. Christ died for us while we were in the fire so that we could be pulled out of the fire, used to make a mark, yes, but pulled out of the fire. And then after that, you essentially don't go back into the fire. It's kind of the other way around. We go around putting out fires with our living water. And you go into a really difficult situation and it, before it would have just made you feel like you were gonna crumble. And now you're like, well, you know, this sucks. But God's going to get the glory somehow or other. I know this is going to work out for my good if I just love him and am called according to his purpose. That's what I'm trying to do. If I just do that, it's going to work out. We mourn, but we don't mourn as those who have no God. He was a brand pulled from the fire. But notice he was pulled from the fire. You can't pull yourself from the fire. You can try to lift yourself up. You can try to do better. You can try to get past it. You can try to get over it. You can try to forget it. You can try to forgive it. But the bottom line is you've been through the fire. You heat it up. You've got some issues. Your tensile strength has changed. And you can make a mark because you've been through the fire. God has pulled us out, those of us who are saved and accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and he did it for his purposes. Joshua, the holiest man in Israel, and really as a reference to the Jerusalemites, are they not, are we not a brand pulled from the fire? We are exactly that. 
And when you start thinking your brand never been in the fire, you're missing your greatest fuel. When you start thinking, well, I've, I, I've been pulled out of the fire, but it wasn't by God, you're missing the greatest truth there ever was. And that God loves you and sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you. And if you accept him as Lord, which means he tells you what to do, and as Savior, which means he paid the price for your sins, then you can be a brand pulled out of the fire, suitable for making a mark. And you don't ever have to go back there in the same way, hopeless, empty, and struggling. If you ever go back there, you will go back there as a light to make a difference in that circumstance. You will always have access to the Lord to pray and say, God, help me in the name of Jesus Christ. And he will indeed do so. He was... And for those of us who accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we are a brand pulled from the fire. The second thing I want you to see in there then is that he stood before God with filthy robes on. I don't know about you, but I, I more often like to think about how I had a filthy set of robes than I like to think about how I have a filthy set of robes. You know what I'm saying? Here is the holiest man in Israel. I'm going to say to you that when, he, when Zechariah prophesied this prophecy and he said, now there's Joshua the high priest standing in front of the Lord, they went, yes! Joshua the high priest standing in front of the Lord, yes! Yes, he's going to do it! Here we go, this is it! And then he said, in his filthy robes, like, no, no, not Joshua, not filthy robes. No, no, his robes are holy, his robes are pure, they're perfect, he is the best of us. No, no, if he's messed up, what about me? And Joshua stood before the Lord and, and the angel of the Lord in filthy robes. His robes were filthy. They were filthy with the righteous works of a somewhat righteous man. The best you will ever present. You will stand before God in filthy robes. Robes that God might even call iniquity. I witnessed. I shared the name of the Lord. I, I prayed. I prayed all the time. I prayed and so-and-so got healed. I prayed and so-and-so believed I was telling them what they needed to do in their future. I rebuked evil spirits and they felt clean. It's all iniquity. The only thing that cleanses that, the only thing that makes that worthwhile, the only thing that makes that something that God can do is if God is in it. If God does it. If God takes your works and makes something out of them, then they are something. And until God takes them and makes something out of them, they are nothing. You can preach the gospel with all your might, as loud as you want, and ask for a salvation decision. And it means absolutely nothing unless God takes it and makes something out of it. And yet people who love the Lord, supposedly, people who look to the Lord, supposedly, are out there, well, I'm doing this and I'm doing that. And I feel like I'm justified in confronting or justified in, in dealing with this problem or justified in dealing with them and their weaknesses because I am wearing some white robes, baby. No, you aren't. <laughs> you are not wearing white robes. You will not wear white robes. You will wear white robes when and if and only if the Lord God takes off of you that which is on you and gives you white robes, which means not in this lifetime, maybe progressively a little better, but not in this lifetime. He stood before God with filthy robes on. He coulda, shoulda, had better. But he didn't. Now about a hundred years before this, Isaiah prophesied in, in uh, Isaiah 64. Uh, and I'm going to go there and read it. I, had, I hadn't made up my mind until this very moment whether I was going to, but I am going to. If I can find it. 
Anybody, anybody want to find it for me? <laughs> I'm getting close. Oh, oh, I'm really close. There we go. Isaiah 64. I'm going to read it. 5 to 8. This is what it says. Thou dost meet him who rejoices in doing righteousness. Who remembers thee in thy ways. Behold, thou was angry, for we sinned. We continued in them a long time. And shall we be saved? For all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And all of us wither like a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind take us away. And there is no one who calls on thy name who arouses himself to take hold of thee. For thou hast hidden thy face from us and hast delivered us into the power of our iniquities. That's Isaiah about a hundred years before. And they both prophesied in the area of Jerusalem. So I'm going to say to you that it's probable that Zechariah had heard that prophecy. You want to stand before God? Do you want to stand before God? No, you don't. But can you? Will you? And if God does it for you, should you? Oh, yes, you should. Because on the other side of standing before God is either judgment and wrath for an eternity or peace and hope for an eternity. One or the other. Everyone will visit. Not everyone gets to stay. He stood before God with filthy robes. As I would. As you would. If God doesn't change us. They changed his clothes. In the presence of Almighty God, they changed his clothes. God rebuked Satan. Shut him down. He took off the old and put on the new. Right then, right there, he changed status before God. This was desperately needed despite the fact that he had an immense perceived status amongst men. It does not matter what people think of you. Not when they think good, nor when they think bad. What matters is what's reality. He was perceived as the holiest in Israel, lifted up as the example, and yet, God changed him. And the new robes that he got were festal. They were exciting. They were he was ready for the feast that God was preparing for all of his people now because God changed him. His works of righteousness were as filthy rags and maybe even would be called iniquity. But now God had changed him. As we go into the conclusion, I have a short video clip I want to show you. Are we ready? Hey, Jordan. This is a review from 1977 by Siskel and Ebert, or if I said their names correctly, of the movie Star Wars. Boom! So there you have it. Your basic intergalactic warfare is the heroic princess is snatched away from the Death Star by the intrepid space buccaneers. And what's the meaning of it all? Who knows and who cares? Star Wars became the new box office champion by providing pure 100% escapist entertainment. It's one of those rare movies that seems to play to every sort of audience gene and bring out the kid in all of us. You know, I've seen the picture three times, and that sequence more than that. And every time I see that little fighting sequence, I think I figured out the secret of at least that chunk in the movie. And that is, that looks exactly like what happens in a pinball game that kids love. 
We're seeing things blow up. And I think the way this movie is shot, different ways, quick action like that, it's like you're putting every person as a pinball player who walks into the theater. Maybe that's why people can see it a dozen times or two dozen times, because it doesn't matter that you know the story. You still have the sound and light, the effects, the explosions, the... Uh, the dogfight in outer space, it's just a never-ending visual delight. I think it's, you know, it's a movie that will last for years. Yeah, the only thing I'm worried about is it's so successful and so mindless fun, but I hope Hollywood doesn't forget that there are people who like to see serious pictures, too. That's the review from 1977, the last minute of it. You can watch the rest if you're interested. Basically, it's just a couple of clips about, from the movie Star Wars, about Star Wars, the movie. Now, you know, I know, historically, we look back at 1977 and the days following, that Star Wars did indeed become the movie that kind of revolutionized the movie industry, etc. like that. But I submit to you that when Siskel and Ebert did this review, it had not yet done so. Did you hear him say, this is why people can see this movie like 12 or 24 times? How many movies in your life have you ever seen 12 or 24 times? Not very many, but that's a raging review, is it not? That you can see that movie 12 or 24 times, and historically, that's what people did. They literally went to the theater and saw the movie Star Wars, paying back then, what, six, seven dollars a ticket, a dozen times, or in some cases, 20 times, to see a movie that many times, and it was revolutionary, it was unique, but they put another spin on it. They told people, it's okay to go to the movies and see the same movie a dozen times. They took off its veneer, its outer coating, which was, this is kind of cool. I, I, I'm not sure about this movie. I've never seen this before. And like, I think that's Siskel. I might get the two of them. Siskel said, I've seen the movie three times. He gave it a raging review, right? In this text, Joshua standing before the Lord, if Satan had given his review of Joshua, it would not have been good. But it would have been accurate. Because Joshua, like everybody else, was a human being who had sin. And so have I, and so do I, and so have you, and so do you. Now, our goal is to have the least possible amount of sin. I understand that, and we're continually turning to the Lord for that healing. But while you're in sin and struggling to overcome that, you're paying, turning to the Lord, giving that over to the Lord. So, and you're in the fire, because every time we go into sin and we're not following the Lord like we're supposed to, we start to feel the wrath of God again, because God opposes our sin. It's not that God hates you, it's just that he doesn't like what you're doing because it's not good for you. So then he opposes our sin and we feel the wrath of God again. So we're sort of sticking ourselves back in there in a way that's not God honoring. And while we're doing that, we're missing the point. We're missing the point that God literally has saved you and made you something new and you should be growing in the newness of that something that he has made you. Paul wrote this in Romans 15. We are in the conclusion. I'm going to repoint real quick and then we'll do the conclusion. Number one, he was a brand pulled from the fire. Number two, he stood before God with filthy robes on. Number three, they changed his robes. And now we're talking about the overview, if you will, of it. And this is what it says in Romans 15. He says, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weakness of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, for his edification. That means building him up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached thee fell upon me. 
For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. And then again, one more verse in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, which says this. 4. For who regards you as superior, and what do you have that you did not receive? But if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? This is the nature of Christianity and the kingdom of God. I'm just going to be plain with you for a moment, and I'm being plain with myself at the same time. This is all of us. We're all screw-ups. We've all blown it. We all dropped the ball. Something's weird about your personality, about the way you dress, about the way you act, what you do with your money, your time, your talents, your skills, the way you treat somebody. We've all screwed up. Every single one of us. That's the ground rule. If you can't come in here... In fact, you can't stay in the kingdom of God unless you are willing to recognize that you screwed up. Bottom line. So we've all screwed up. Okay? Let's cope with that. Then that means we all get the filthy robes at best. Right? But that's not what you ultimately want. You want to be a brand pulled from the fire, redressed in festal robes, eternity in heaven with God. That's what you ultimately want. So we've all screwed up. God's principle of reclothing is this. You must realize you have screwed up. If you come before God in the best dress you can possibly come before God, and meaning if you say, I got saved, and now you've been living in righteousness, you're doing the best, you might be more honest than anybody who has ever lived. You could literally become the most honest person there ever was and get to heaven, and God will say, I'm going to take your iniquity from you. And you'll be like, great, at least I get to keep my honesty. And God will say, no, I'm taking that. What do you mean? You're taking my honesty? Yeah, because your honesty... At best, it is honesty of a brand pulled from the fire. Meaning, had I not pulled you from the fire, you would not have had it. And instead of attributing that to me and realizing it's something I gave you, you attributed it to you and the growing you and the getting better you and the whatever you, and I'm taking that from you because it is a messed up thing that will just keep you from realizing who I really am. The guiding principle of reclothing is you must realize that you were screwed up, you were a brand in the fire, and you were never going to forever get out of that fire. In fact, you were forever going to wind up forever in that fire unless God pulled you out. And if God pulled you out, then number two, He can pull anyone else out. It does not matter the color of their skin. It does not matter their age. It does not matter their gender. If they can understand it, if they can grasp it, if they're willing, if you're here today and you are willing to be pulled out by God, then you can be pulled out. And that's it. But we're walking around going, yeah, God pulled me out. Praise God. Oh, sorry. Ain't got time to talk to you about that right now. I'm busy. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm just not good at talking. God didn't make me a mouth. So I can't share with you the fact that God pulled me out of the fire and totally transformed my life and that I am trusting completely in God for an eternity in heaven. Can't share that with you right now because I got to get this part or I got to do that or I got to run here or I got to be there or I'm going to be three minutes late if if I stop and talk to you right now or whatever. God can pull any brand out of the fire. You can't keep it in there. Satan can't keep it in there. Shut up, Satan. Satan can't keep it in there. Except we are living our lives as if we sort of wiggled ourselves out of the fire and we're good. 
And that isn't how it happens. The guiding principle of reclothing is you must accept that you were screwed up and God pulled you out of the fire. And because he pulled you out of the fire, he can pull anyone out of the fire. And then we must treat others as if, number one, they need to be pulled out of the fire. Number two, they truly can be pulled out of the fire. And number three, ultimately, they belong to him. And you are not what another person needs or wants you to be. You are not failing them. You are not failing you. You are failing God. And it may be inconvenient. It may hurt. It sure hurt Jesus. There is an accuser. And you or I may not even realize that he's putting thoughts in our head to accuse someone else. But every time you hear that person is bad, mean, they did this thing I don't like, they shouldn't do it that way, you say, get thee behind me, Satan. Because there, but for the grace of God, go I. And I would be in hell, or at best in heaven, wearing filthy robes, needing them stripped off so I can get my festal robes and stay. I hope he'll let me stay. Oh God, at the end of my journey, after I've done all that I thought I should do for the Lord, I hope he'll let me stay. And you say, look, you should know. Yes, the Holy Spirit testifies in my spirit with my spirit that I am saved. But like the Apostle Paul, who had a similar testimony, in fact, wrote those words, I can reasonably say, I do not want to come to the end of my journey and be disqualified. And how would you do that? Well, you would forget somewhere along the way that you have nothing except that which God gave you. And you would begin to think, I've come so far, when in reality, you've done nothing. And he's done everything. The guiding principle of reclothing is that we can all be reclothed. We must treat others as if they need to be reclothed, if they, as if we know they can be, truly can be reclothed, and as, they, as if they belong to him. You have not been reclothed yet. I'm not saying you need to run out to the store. I'm not saying you need to try harder. I'm saying we need to add to our understanding this fact. We are fully dependent on the God of the universe to get to that place which we have set our sights upon. And we are so blessed because in our church we have people, in this small church, we have people who differ so much culturally, in music choices, in hearing the message of God in different ways. We are blessed. You don't want to lose the blessings that God has given you, but even those blessings are nothing compared to what God has in store. Would you come I would say with me, and I hope I'll make the journey. Won't you come along and let's share this reality? There is someone, we have people, there are people in this room who lost a loved one in the last two months. We have people in this room who are fighting cancer. We have, literally right now. And, and people are like going, I don't know who lost a loved one in the last two months. I don't know who's fighting cancer. Yeah, and you don't have to. You can realize that the fire is affecting everyone and you can realize that everyone needs to be reclothed and you can realize that everyone deserves the love and encouragement that God wants to give to you and through you to them. You can realize that and you can shut up and stop accusing and stop those negative thoughts and stop the discouragement and stop the anger and stop the frustration. You can let it all go and say, I have nothing except that which God gave me and I am going to be that which God gave to somebody else. 
which is what Jesus did. Which is what Jesus did. And when you do that, you're a Christian. Let me pray for you, and we'll be through. For me, Father in heaven, help us. We've been through the fire. We've been in the fire. Some of us are in the fire right now. Help us to remember the price that was paid. Help us to always remember that we don't know what hell is like. As bad as it gets sometimes here on earth, we don't know hell firsthand. Sometimes I imagine that it's like that that empty, painful, exhausting feeling I used to have when I wasn't saved, but multiplied an infinite number of times. Which truly puts it out of my reach to imagine. God, help us. Help us be your people. Help us trust you with all that we are. Help us be willing to suffer or be willing to pay or be willing to, if necessary, crumble. Help us to be humble so that you can lift us up because when we lift ourselves up, we're standing on that which can't stand. Help us, Lord, be unified, sober-minded, but at the same time of one mind to recognize that all people of all, aces, of all ages, of all cultures, of all creeds, of all situations, of all financial situations, of all, all people are the people that you desire. And that you want to have a relationship, a personal relationship, a loving relationship, an embracing relationship with every person who's still taking breath. You literally did nothing short of dying for that purpose. Help us, God. It seems like maybe people are awakening around us. There might be someone in this room and say, you know what, I, I, I've been through the fire and I want to be like a brand pulled out of the fire. I want to give my life over to the Lord. I want to let him do through me what it is that he wants to do. And they can feel themselves at the offing point, at the moment of being reborn, even just now. Lord, help them. Help them be courageous. Help them jump forward and say, that's me. And Lord, there are people in this room who are followers of yours that have been for days or decades Satan is still real and he and his minions are still there. There's accusation. There's judgment. There's fire. I just pray, Lord, that we would do what you'd have us to do. We would be who you'd have us to be. Here so close to the fire with people all around us and even in our families facing the fire. Lord, help us go in there with the living water and quench the fire. Let us be a part of pulling some folks free. Not that we can do it, because we can't, but you sure can. And it seems from your word that you're willing. 
to use us as your ambassadors. We pray that we would be just, just what you want us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ask praise team come forward and lead us in a song. This is our closing hymn of our service, but it's also your hymn of decision. It's your opportunity to make public any decision that you've made today while you're here or in between services or whatever. So if you're accepting Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, for the first time ever, then you make it public now. If you're uh, living for the Lord and you realize you've not been doing what it is that you should be doing and you're repenting of that and turning to follow the Lord, then you can make that public now. And you should. You should. Okay. You can walk forward or you can just raise your hand right where you're at and we'll call on you uh, when we stop singing. If you're making a decision, you don't need to be singing. Just be addressing it with the Lord. Would you stand if you're comfortable, able to do so where you are and sing the song with us. This is the air I breathe.
remember stuff coming. I don't have a good reason why. I know you're not looking for a reason why, but I just want to say that I'm sorry that I stopped attending here. I shouldn't have. If there is anything to forgive, I pronounce you forgiven. All right. We agree? Everybody? Lots of nodding, lots of yeses. All right. That's settled. Anybody else? Yeah. I um, I did a little bit of this earlier, but a couple things that came to mind, and I wasn't here for the whole sermon, but um, there have been a lot of things going on this week. And for myself, I have had very low moments and then some very high moments and it seems like I'm not paying attention when those things are happening to hear what it is that God is saying in the moment. Um, there was a conversation that I had with a friend and a church family member this week um, about sometimes when people give you encouragement, sometimes when you encourage others, they may not need it right then, but they'll need it later. Mm. And um, I, that's happened to me. There was an inspirational moment that I did a couple months ago, Truth Be Told, by Matthew West. And this week, I was on my bathroom floor, bawling uncontrollably. Zayden was crying, Zoe was crying, and I didn't know what to do. Mm. And I called my sister, which was not the best person to call at the moment, um, because she was upset about some of the same things that I was upset about. And so... It took a minute for there to be any help, but in that moment, if I was listening to God, I could have came out of it a lot sooner than I did. And um, I was not being transparent. There were plenty of other people that I could have called. There are people that I could have asked for help. I burned the candle at both ends for three days in a row last week to get ready for anniversary celebration, and there was plenty of people that I could have called for help, and I didn't. And so I need to remember, and we all need to remember, that we are here for each other, and we need to not be afraid to ask for help. Don't run yourself into the ground. Don't be afraid to ask, even if you think they might say no. And that's my biggest issue, is I'm afraid to ask. That person's busy. They've got their own stuff to deal with. They're not going to want to help me, so I'll just deal with it. And that's not the way that it should be. It's not the way that we should be as a church family. It's not the way we should be with our family and friends, especially the church family, and I think that we all need to remember that in those moments, the hardest moments there is to listen and ask for help is the number one time that we should do that. I don't know sometimes whether it's harder to listen listen and ask for help when it's really bad or when it's really good. Both times are really hard. (laughs) But you're absolutely right. We should be listening. That's a good word. Brother Tony? So, uh, playing this uh, Sunday, I was like, you know, I just think I'm going to stay home. I was going to, but that's what I was caught up on. And I was like, when I'm drowning in a sea of pain and sea of bitterness, I'm used to just staying on under radar because there's no way to trust because so many people, you know, I'm allowed to, but, you know, take advantage of me when I got here. I was like, you know, I'm going to sing and Lord said, no, you're just going to stay quiet. And you're going to listen. And um, from the get-go, I was so, we're already blessed, but 
um, when I heard the battles of wars and Ariana's song about when there's no peace on earth, there's peace in Christ. And when Mike was talking about no compromise and continue on, take the path, and it, it just everything from everything to everything. I just heard the Lord tell me, let it go. It's not yours. You didn't die for that. You didn't die for them. You're not the reason. You're not the answer. You're, you're not going to be able to get through this. This is my relationship. It's not yours. And I just kept hearing all these things and truly was the Lord. Absolutely encouraged me. And uh, uh, what the Lord asked me to say, and um, it may not mean anything later. It might mean something later. But you know, there's three righteousness in this earth, and there's Christ's righteousness. It's overall. Either live right, live upright, do right, stand right. And only Christ has done that. And when someone does something right, that's his righteousness in them. Yeah. You know, no matter what, this isn't about salvation at first. But the idea is that everybody can choose to do right. We can choose to do wrong. We can choose to do evil. When Christ brings us out of this unrighteous life, when we're saved, then it's Christ's righteousness making us live righteously. Amen. So everybody's called to do what is right. Amen. And that's the first righteousness. The second righteousness is unrighteousness. That is just all that is wicked and is untrue to God. That God opposes um, and absolutely has opposition to. But as a Christian, we're living unrighteously. God doesn't condemn us. God convicts us and uses all the things in this life that he's been using, you know, even our own flesh to trigger it, to bait it. You know, not that he's tempting us. It's because we are tempted. It's because we have a problem. And he brings us to that place so that we can come to him and have his righteousness to fight, to surrender, to submit, to be convicted, to do what is right. And the other righteousness, which is, I think is the hardest of all, is self-righteousness. Pride, it's proud, it's it's exalting yourself, it's making you think that you're okay, you've got it all together, that you know, no one can see it, and you're caught up in this place of self-righteousness. That one to me, for God it's not hard, but for us it's really hard. Because that's where God has to actually bring opposition. Because he's got to humble us. And I think that's the hardest place is self-righteousness. The Pharisees were just a point, as so many in the Bible and history today, of the most self-righteous people ever. They were absolutely self-righteous because they thought they were right with God because of everything that they did on the exterior or on the outside, but didn't realize they had no relationship on God on the inside. And so God did whatever he could. Even Jesus, you never see Jesus really, like, you know, um, not accused, but oppose anyone but the Pharisees or the, or the scribes. You know, he opposed them because he wanted to reach them to their very hearts. So they would repent. And Nicodemus got it, you know, and others probably got it. But the idea is that, so there is different ways, I guess you could say. Self-righteousness, opposition. God would do whatever it takes to bring you off that horse and get onto his white horse. Amen. His true and faithful horse. Unrighteousness, God would do whatever it takes in conviction and knocking and knocking and knocking until you open that door and allow his love and his commitment, his wisdom, his understanding, the kindness of God, brings us to repentance. That's right. And then God always, Christ's righteousness, and sees any moment, because it is absolutely him being right, no matter how this world has treated us, or we treated them, that it has always been his righteousness. So I just want to say thank you once again, New Race, and thank you for God's spirit in every person, because I would not be even any step 
And I, I pray this has happened to all churches. Because even in imperfect churches, no matter what, God is the head over all. And I pray even right now, people are absolutely being convicted to turn to Him in the way He always wanted it to be. His relationship, not ours. That's a good work. Good work, Craig. Real quick, that little video you had, mm -hmm. did you notice what he said at the end of it? Probably. Go ahead. Um, he said, I hope Hollywood doesn't forget that people like serious movies too. Mm -hmm. And it was, it stuck with me for a while, and then I started hearing you talk about how we need to not forget either. Mm -hmm. So, from whatever I've been hearing, from all the stuff I've been hearing and all the stuff I've thought of just being here in this couple of hours we've been here, is is that exact thing. We need to not forget what we're doing. Mm -hmm. We need to not forget what we're here for. We need, not, we need to not forget who we're fighting for Amen. and what we're fighting for and what we're fighting. Because you may, if you forget what you're fighting, that you're, for, you're fighting a spiritual war that is has the power to crush you in an instant. This is what we're fighting. And this is a very serious thing. So we need to not forget the seriousness of what God is trying to do in us. Mm. And the seriousness of Satan trying to push us back. So we can't do that. And it just, it, it stuck with me because it's, it's just amazing that how easy we forget. How many things distract us. You could be in the midst of a ministry, pouring your heart into a ministry, and forget why you're doing it. That's right. So, I think from what I've been hearing from everyone is that we need to not forget this. Yeah. We need to not forget that we are a family. We need to not forget that we need to pull together as a family, as a group, to fight the worst enemy you will ever see in your entire life. And that is Satan and his minions coming after you to destroy you. So we need to stand together as a church, as a family, and remember to fight the good fight. Alright, God is good. You almost hate, we just have another service now. I mean, whatever, but God is so good. And uh, it's funny because um, what, what you're saying is we couldn't have put this together if we tried. I mean, Lord was speaking through so many people and uh, His Spirit and um, and things like that. And um, you know, God is good. He's so good to do that for us. And let's say to us. And let's say in us. All right. I'm going to ask uh, Brother Tim Mitchell, would you close us in prayer today and, as the Lord leads?